Radio Mano Papachango. Hi Chris, this is Chris in Port Angeles, Washington, where my day job has temporarily evaporated and I am now a poet in place. When I feel how the river of time carries me along in its strong current, I watch the sandy bottom glide by and see the present firm and unbroken. But I think of the layers from eons uncounted and wonder at how they have shaped the course of my path through a universe that counts me as a mere particle, shifting with a current that I cannot direct. I can only reflect that I am still afloat and have always been a swimmer between the shores of an uncertain future, content to drift the quiet stretches between the rapids and find my fortune one ripple at a time. Everybody, stay safe out there. Thank you so much, Chris the Poet, and everybody else out there who sends your intros. You can send them to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, this episode is with someone who, uh, frankly, intimidates me intellectually. Uh, he's somebody I admire and also disagree with on some things, uh, particularly a book he wrote a long time ago. I mean, he and I have a, a relationship that's more complicated and um, significant to me than it is to him. <laughs> no doubt. I am a minor presence in his consciousness. Uh, and he's been an important figure in my life. His name's Robert Wright. Uh, call him Bob now, I guess, even though I know him as Robert. Kind of like Andrew Weil. I knew him as Andrew Weil for years because I read his books and the name on the book is Andrew. And then I got to know him and he goes by Andy. And it's still, <clears throat> even though I've known him, God, almost 20 years now, it still strikes me as overly familiar to call him Andy. I've been his house guest. I've been in his hot tub, but still calling him Andy makes me feel a little weird. Um, anyway, Robert Wright, Bob, Bob Wright, uh, is an author of many books, one of which changed my life, called The Moral Animal. It is a book that I read when I was in graduate school, and um, it basically outlines what I later came to describe as the standard narrative of human sexual evolution, which is basically the Darwinian view that the human female, like most females, uh, most mammals, is basically not really interested in sex and just sort of goes along with it. And all the eagerness is in the males. The males are uh, running around trying to spread their seed. The females are the limiting factor who are choosy and they're thinking about, is this guy going to be a good provider? Can he protect me? Is he a good hunter? How healthy is he? How symmetrical is he? Some of these things are happening subconsciously. Some of them are happening on a more conscious level among humans. 
goes the argument. And I read that book. You probably heard me tell this story before, but I read that book. I was in San Francisco. I was in grad school. And uh, I thought, holy shit, this explains everything. And uh, I started talking about it, as I tend to do. I was excited. Also, it's a beautifully written book. I really need to say that. It is... um, Bob is a very, very good writer. um, And, you know, there's just a joy in reading his stuff. Um, Whether you agree with, ultimately, with what he's saying or not is secondary to the fact that he writes so elegantly and he thinks so um, deftly that uh, it's just a joy to be along. It's, you know, like, you know, your favorite professor who just like whatever he's talking about sounds awesome, really interesting. Anyway, so I read that book and I started telling everybody about it, how it explains how men are, you know, motivated by this and women are motivated by that. And, you know, we're in this sort of locked in this arm struggle, this sexual arm struggle. And uh, luckily, I had a lot of really smart women in my life in those days, in, in all days. And those women would challenge me and they challenged the ideas that I was coming at them with this idea that women are not really sexual and they're motivated more by, you know, what else they can get out of the relationship. And, uh, some of these women who actually were strippers and sex workers said, you know, dude, that's really not way women have sex which is ironic, of course, because they were using their sexuality to get resources for men. But they were also saying like, hey, the reason women use their sexuality to get resources for men is that women have been subjugated for so long, limited for so long in how they can get resources that all they're left with is their sexuality. Women couldn't work. Women can't have positions of power. You know, you can name on one hand the number of women who've had access to their own incomes and fortunes until very recently. It's always been through the father, through the husband. Women are basically possessions of men. And so what the fuck do you expect them to do? And they came back at me with really smart critiques that led me to go back and start looking at the original research that Bob was citing in his book. And I started finding things that didn't make it into his argument, uh, like bonobos and information about hunter-gatherer groups that don't even know that sex results in pregnancy or that uh, raise children communally. So the question of who the father is 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 non, uh, just not important. It's not a consideration. Uh, resources are shared. So this whole idea that a woman is looking to a man for the source of her resources and all that. It, it all just started to come apart. And that, of course, led to my doctoral dissertation. I dropped what I was what I had been working on until then and started looking at this in much greater detail. And then years later, it uh, resulted in Sex at Dawn. And here we are. So uh, Bob has played a pivotal role in my life. And even though I ended up basically writing Sex at Dawn as a refutation of the moral animal in many respects, I never lost my respect 
uh, an admiration for that book or its author. So I am really happy to have him on the podcast and bring him to you. He's an awesome dude. He, uh, that book he wrote, as I said, that came out in 89 or early 90s, maybe. Uh, so it was a long time ago and we don't really get into it. Neither one of us really wanted to debate all this stuff or, um, you know, get into any kind of hostile exchanges about who's right and who's wrong. It doesn't matter. We've both written our books and they're both out there and people can read them and come to their own conclusions, which is the nature of, I think, um, you know, legitimate intellectual dialogue. Um, but he's gone on to write other books. He wrote a book called Zero Sum, uh, really interesting, that uh, sort of exposes some of the flawed assumptions in the way we think, you know, assuming that for me to win, you need to lose and vice versa, which, of course, lies at the uh, foundation of many of the problems that we have in the world. His last book is called uh, Why Buddhism is True, uh, I believe. And uh, yeah, he's a practicing Buddhist. He's you know, very much in his head, but he's also uh, very balanced, uh, very interested in realms that, um, I don't know, maybe they're all in our head. Who knows? Who knows where these realms lie? So Robert Wright, Bob, uh, is today's guest. And this, by the way, episode is totally free. No commercials, no bullshit. Uh, thank you to those of you who support the podcast for making that possible. I try to keep the commercials to a minimum, um, but uh, occasionally they're very useful for paying the bills. I've had some awesome conversations recently. Uh, I'm doing more recording than I am uploading at this point. Um, I'm banking a bunch because I'm going to lose my access to steady, quick internet connection once uh, I head off in the van at the end of May. So I've been just banking lots of episodes, but um, there's some really great conversations coming up. I wish I could just like upload them as soon as I do them or do them live. Um, I probably I, I probably could do them live and record. It. I don't know. I, I, I just talked to a guy today, Craig Adams. Look him up. If you check out, if you're on YouTube at all, he does really beautiful um, films. I don't even call them videos. They're they're more like films. They're very well shot and edited uh, of himself just hiking alone at various places in the world. Um, real art, r really interesting. Um, and so we had a great conversation about travel, about youth. He's 30 years old, about, you know... Um, how he's so much more comfortable with these technologies than I am because this is his world. He was born into this. Um, and it all sort of came on the scene when I was already an, an adult. So I think in some ways it's like learning a language. You know, you learn it as a kid. It's natural. You learn it as an adult. It never really is. Um, anyway, that's one of the, the episodes that's coming. I've been thinking, I got an email uh, about a week ago that kind of bummed me out. Um, and I don't know why this one in particular bummed me out. Because, you know, basically what the email said was, I've listened to your podcast for a long time. And recently I've realized that you're an asshole. 
and that you're nowhere near as cool as you pretend to be. Uh, so fuck you. And, you know, look, I get emails like that on a pretty regular basis. And when I was talking about wearing a mask and that kind of stuff, I got a lot of them. Um, but, the, you know, if you're talking to 50,000 people, um, either you're going to say something that pisses people off, especially if you kind of, um, uh, you know, if you like being unfiltered as I do and you see a podcast as an opportunity to say things that other people may be afraid to say. Well, sometimes you're going to say things that you should have been afraid to say or, or you should just shut the fuck up. And But you're, you know, trying to be amusing or you're trying to, you know, say something new. And, uh, you know, it's not writing. There's no editing. There's no coming back to it a week later and, and you know, thinking about whether you really wanted to say that or if you really wanted it to say to say it in that way. So... It's unfiltered. And that's one of the things I like about this. Um, I think it's one of the things that a lot of you like about this. Uh, you you have, you know, access to filtered, hydrogenated, pasteurized content everywhere. Um, but there's not a lot of just off the cuff, from the heart, you know, shoot from the hip kind of stuff. And that's appeals to me more and, you know... Um, over time, you find an audience that it appeals to them more. But there are exceptions to that. There might be people who come along and just like, whoa, this, I don't like this. This is all unrefined and just this dude talking shit sometimes. So, okay, that's fine. Then they go to listen to Radio Lab or whatever. Um, and then there's... Uh, you know, there are people like this guy who've been along for the ride for a while, I guess, and then something changes in their lives or maybe an aspect of me comes out that wasn't apparent before and the relationship changes. And I'm not going to lie, that doesn't, I'm not going to tell you that doesn't hurt when somebody writes and says, I used to think you were cool and now I think you're an asshole. Um, but it doesn't hurt that bad because they don't know me and I've long since, um, you know, understood that what people react to is not actually me. If someone gets pissed off about my books, for example, that's their right. They can write a nasty review on Amazon, I, whatever. Um, everyone's reacting to things within themselves, how something lands within them. Um, and so the thing that that the trigger is often a very um, minor part of that whole reaction. Um, you know, if a couple's sitting in a cafe and a woman walks by and the dude checks her out and then his wife gets pissed off and then they end up in a big fight, it's not about the woman who walked by right she has nothing to do with it she doesn't even know what happened uh, and so I kind of feel like that it's it's like people react to me or to something I've said or something I've written um, and their reaction is about them and their situation and their relationship 
uh, their their sense of self and so on. Anyway, so normally I don't write back to people, but I wrote back to this guy and just said, hey, I'm sorry you feel that way and, you know, good luck. And then he wrote back and he said, uh, I, I don't remember, but, but I remember one thing he said was, yeah, you know, I guess like a lot of our perceptions are based on projection. Oh, because I said, I'm sorry, you feel the need to project your sadness or your disappointment or whatever, your unhappiness onto me. And then he wrote back and said, yeah, you know, I guess most perception is projection to a large extent. And in any in any case, you certainly seem to be enjoying your life more than I am. And that just fucking made me sad. Um. It confirmed, of course, my sense that what people, when people are angry or aggressive, they're acting out of something within themselves. Um, But it also just made me sad because, like, first of all, you know, it's a sad place to be when someone else's happiness makes you, you unhappy, right? I mean, it's back to Bob Wright, zero sum, right? Like that's zero sum thinking. Like the fact that you're happy doesn't mean there's less happiness in the world for the rest of us. Um, and I think that kind of thinking lies at the base of envy and jealousy. It's like, you know, you can't enjoy someone else's company. That means you enjoy me less. Like what? No, no, that's not how it works, but that's how most people think it works. Um, you know, you you make more money than me, therefore that's why I make less money? What? I don't think so. That's not how money works. That's not how happiness works. Um, but it got me thinking, uh, and I, I and I wrote back to him and I said, you know, maybe I'm enjoying my life more than you are, or maybe not, because your vision of my, your perception of my life is is partial. Um, you know, podcasts are social media and just like Instagram, you know, if you follow someone on Instagram, you see the happy days, you see the beautiful places, you see the, the good light, you see the right angle. Um, there's so much editing that goes on. And as much as I try to keep this podcast raw and unfiltered, that doesn't mean it's comprehensive. That doesn't mean that every thought that comes into my head goes out on the podcast. It doesn't mean that every sadness I feel is something I discuss publicly. uh, Or that every joy I feel is something that I talk about here. Um, And so I just want to say, like, you know, please don't compare your 360 degree life with the 45 degrees of my life that you see. Um, Especially if that makes you feel sad or inadequate in any way. Because there are all sorts of things going on in my life that I don't talk about here. So many disappointments, so many losses, so much grief that I experience, but that aren't part of the show. They're not part of 
the you know this public figure that you're hearing right now which is me uh, i have a i have actually many very close friends who i've gotten to know through the podcast or they've gotten to know me through the podcast i should say um i haven't made any lists but easily half of the people that i am closest to now are people who came into my world through the podcast and so they met me the way you've met me first and then we actually started hanging out and um and i've asked some of them like you know am i different from the guy you knew before you know that guy that you heard but didn't see never touched and what they've all said is no you're the same there's just a lot more of you than I than came through the podcast. There are aspects of you I had no idea about. And I think that's accurate. So what I try to do on the podcast is I'm not lying to you. I'm not putting on a show. This is not, um, you know, I, I know people in L.A. And I, I've been thinking I wanted to talk with this, uh, uh, talk with you about this. Because this is one of my sadnesses that I don't talk about, but I will talk about it now. Um, living in L.A. as I did for those years and getting to know people and getting to know some people who are quite famous and you know successful in those terms. One of the things I realized is that, um, and it's old news that L.A. is bullshit, but there's a way in which L.A., People in L.A. are both hyper-authentic and also totally full of shit at the same time. I'll try to explain. And the first time I really started thinking about this was when I was appearing on shows. I was on documentaries and, you know, whatever, TV shows and stuff. And, like, you know, people would really go to great lengths to get me to be on their show. They would send limos to pick me up. They would fly me places. At one point, uh, this Netflix show, uh, it's called something, I think it was Non-Monogamy Explained. They wanted me to be, uh, to interview me on the show. And I was traveling in the van at the time. And they emailed me and I was like, yeah, look, I'm sorry, I'm not in LA. I'm, I'm on the road and you know, it's not a good time and whatever. And, and they were like, no, but we really, really want you to be on the show. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I, I just, it's not a good time. I'm traveling around in my van. I don't know where I'm going to be. And they're like, well, if you pick a place where you, where you can be in two weeks, we will fly there with the crew. And I was like, I think I'm going to be in New Orleans in two weeks. Okay. We will meet you in New Orleans on the 14th. Da, da, da. And they did. They flew the whole crew to New Orleans. They rented a studio. And we spent a day interviewing me. And then if you go and look on Netflix, Non-Monogamy Explained or Monogamy Explained or something, I, like I, they probably interviewed seven or eight people, but half the time is, is on me. So yeah, they really like wanted to focus this thing on me. Um, anyway, the point is like, I'm thinking like, why would you do this? That's all this money, all this expense. I'm fucking nobody. I'm this douchebag traveling around in a van. Um, but people, 
there was value in me from their perspective, right? I'd written this book. Everyone was talking about the book. Casilda and I, blah, blah, blah. I'd done the TED Talk. I was. They saw me on other shows like, okay, that's, that's who we need to anchor this point to really get this thing. Um, and so when you go to do a show, everyone is like, oh, can we get you anything? Oh, my God, I've read your book. Oh, you're so brilliant. That book is, you changed my life. This is so amazing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm so nervous to talk to you. This is, so... and it's like, it creates this weird uh, distortion of reality. And I can just imagine what it's like to actually be, you know, really famous, to be Leonardo to fucking Caprio or somebody. It's like you're you're the gravitational field around you distorts reality. I got a tiny, tiny little taste of that, and I and wow. So okay, everyone wants to bring you things. They want to bring da 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 da, da. and then you do the interview, and man, the minute you're done with the interview, they've got what they need. It's like you cease to exist. They're done with you. Uh, I remember from that that studio, uh, like, you know, they had done, they had flown to New Orleans, got hotels, brought all their equipment, did all this shit. But as soon as that interview was done, it was like, all right, bye. And like we walked from, I remember we walked from the studio. There was not even like, they didn't even call a taxi for me or ask me if I needed a ride somewhere. It was just like, get the fuck out. We're done with you. Don't let the door hit you on the ass. And I'm not talking shit about Netflix or whoever produced that show. That's the way it works. Every show I've ever been on is just kiss ass, kiss ass, kiss ass. You're amazing. Oh, my God. And as soon as they got what they need from you, it's like you disappear. Just, you know, just go. I've got other people's ass to kiss now. And that mentality, I think, uh, either, I don't know whether it's a chicken egg situation. I don't know whether that mentality attracts certain kinds of people to the entertainment business or that uh, mentality gets cultivated when you're in the entertainment business. But it's very transactional. It's very... um, it's it's like all the good stuff is front loaded <clears throat> at the beginning of the relationship and then when you no longer have value to them there's nothing there's nothing there's no residual like thank you for coming and good luck with your next book and there's nothing and some of the people in Los Angeles that I thought I was friends with, I now realize it was the same kind of thing. We weren't actually friends. There was some kind of value exchange going on. And that only lasts as long as I've got the hot book that's out or another book or they're seeing me on TV. That's when they want me around. And when that stuff's not happening anymore, although during the years that it was happening, I thought that we developed an actual admiration for each other. Um, then it's like, 
Yeah, you disappear. They don't fucking answer your emails or your text and you're just like, oh, huh, okay, so that's what it is. And I'm not saying, I'm not going to name any names. Um, be, and I also want to be very clear that it's not everyone. And there are people that I met in L.A. whose names you know who are fucking awesome and who manage to continue to be real people and uh, to not act that way. Uh, but a lot of them, that's what they are. And that's that makes me fucking sad. You know, if I looked at the things that have made me saddest in my life, it's always been um, that kind of thing. Someone I thought I knew, I had a real connection with. And it turns out it was just contextual that, that, um, you know, it was real while it lasted. It was real in that circumstance, but it wasn't real uh, on any kind of larger, um, uh, what's the word, you know, some transcendent, some, on, on any larger scale that transcends context, transcends circumstance, transcends life stage and, you know, all that. Um, and, and I, and we've all had those experiences, right? You got your, your friend that you think you're really close to, and then he gets married and suddenly it's over. Well, so you were friends with him, but now, you know, if his wife doesn't like you that much or doesn't like your girlfriend, now it's all a whole, you know, it's a whole different thing. It's not just about you and him anymore. Now it's all circumstantial. Anyway, so that's one of the things that I don't normally share on this podcast. So if, if you know, this guy who wrote me that email, if he's looking at me like, oh, you know, you got all these friends and you, everybody loves you and everything's great in your life. Well, no, no, not really. I just don't talk about that shit a lot. And there is no reason to talk about it unless it provides, I think, some value to you. So... Uh, that's why I talked about it today, because I thought maybe there's some value in that for you. If not, please apologize to me for yammering on for half an hour here. Once again, this episode is Robert Wright, who is a fucking awesome writer, thinker, and dude. And it seems after that rant, it seems only fitting to play you out with a song uh, that is very much about exploitative relationships, um, the sort of disappointment in realizing that a relationship is not what you thought it was. The song, I'm sure you've heard it if you listen to classic rock stations at all. The song is called Fair Game, and it's by Crosby, Stills, and Nash, one of their awesome tunes. Check them out if if you don't know their work. Uh, they've got lots of really good music that they produced in the I guess 70s and 80s fair game thanks for listening catch you next time take a look around
I think everything is working. I'm here with Bob Wright. Um, I don't know if you remember, I was on Blogging oh, yeah. Heads with you years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had Sex a very Sex at Dawn. Sex at Dawn, right? The uh... I don't mean I don't mean we had Sex at Dawn. I mean we talked about the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're. I remember. I, I don't know where you said this, but I remember. Uh, Somewhere you said that since the Holy Bible, no book had been so mistaken about the evolution of human sexuality or something like that. I was really I know, honored. If I said it, you can use it as a blurb. <laughs> I'm just trying to help. Has anyone done that? Has anyone taken like the most sort of noteworthy 
uh, critical statements of a book. You know, this book is a complete piece of trash and just like put those on the back cover. That's a great idea. I, I, I think some I have seen that kind of thing. People wearing the scorn of their enemies as a badge of honor. Um, but I'm not aware of it actually being put on the jacket of a book. Publishers generally don't have that kind of sense of humor. <laughs> exactly. You um, have to self-publish. Well, I, I never yeah. considered you an enemy, though, because I, The Moral Animal is one of the most important books I've ever read in, in the sense of changing the trajectory of my life. Um, you know, I was working on... Uh, I was in graduate school and I was working on something totally different as a potential dissertation when I read The Moral Animal and I dropped what I was doing and just got totally obsessed with evolutionary psychology and, you know, trying to make sense of sexuality and why men are the way they are and women and the miscommunications and the, all that stuff. And it was all because not only the information that you introduced me to in that book, but the grace and humor and um, elegance with which you presented it. It was so well done, you know, interweaving the biographical information about Darwin with the conceptual uh, information that you were conveying that it just blew my mind. Um, I ended up disagreeing with a lot of it, but it, it's right. what it was, got me It was me so well it. done that it took you years to discover that it was wrong, right? <laughs> well, I don't think I told you this story, but when I read that book, I was living in San Francisco um, with a woman who was a stripper at uh, Mitchell Brothers Theater, which is sort of the this legendary strip club in San Francisco. And I, you know, you turned me into like a proselytizing uh, evolutionary psychologist that was running around explaining to everybody why men and women thought the way they did based upon what I'd read in your book. And I'm, she, I might have warned you against I might have warned you against that, by the way, if you had checked with me that 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 that, that can that can work and it cannot work depending on who you're talking to. But go ahead. How did how did the stripper take the news? Well, she she was like, you know, I, I presented the the sort of central argument that, you know, women have traded fidelity for various goods and services over the millennia. Uh, protection I'm not status. Sure I would have put it ex I'm not sure by the way, I'm not sure I would put it exactly that way, but I won't keep interrupting um, <laughs> That's why you're here. You're <laughs> women. Women. I, I should say. I mean, evolutionary psychology does not argue that women are by their nature faithful. That is not an argument from evolutionary psychology. But they do use their their fidelity as a bargaining chip in exchange. Well, but they, right. They, Male paternity certainty is is a, is well, a concern. I mean. They use and and when we say they use it as a bargaining chip, it, it doesn't mean they're consciously doing this. It means that you know the the emotional infrastructure and what they're attracted to and what they're not attracted to kind of guides them through an implicit strategy. That in general is what we mean when we talk about uh, animals as if they were uh, strategizers and and as if they had been made strategizers by natural selection. We're never saying that they're necessarily conscious of the strategy, but with that as a uh, as a footnote, what you would say is that uh, one thing that's a bargaining chip is sexual access. I mean, that's the most important thing from the from the male's point of view. 
again, the, at least the unconscious point of view, um, you know, getting access to a scarce sexual resource, uh, a scarce reproductive resource, which is to say uh, a woman's sexuality. Um, now, you're right that if, if, if uh, it, it may be in the woman's interest, if she wants to sustain the male's investment in the offspring to either actually be faithful or convince the male that she is faithful, I mean, again, and he's not even necessarily consciously thinking, oh, she's being faithful, so I'll assume this kid is mine and be very nice to the kid. But again, the argument is that all this works at an unconscious level, but it's certainly a viable evolutionary strategy for a woman to be fooling around on the side uh, and and not not get caught by the man and still sustain some parental investment or conceivably get by without investment, although it's, it's thought, and by investment we don't mean dollars, we mean uh, the, the, the father's, you know, concern and attention and and care for and provision for the offspring, but um, there is reason to think that during evolution, a male's support in child rearing would have been a very good thing. So either leaving one male under the impression that he's, uh, again, the unconscious impression that he's the father, like with great confidence, or at least, you know, could in principle work to have a lot of males under the impression that they may well be the father. That seems to be what the way it works more like uh, with chimpanzees. So why would you know, so much of it be unconscious, and yet this idea that the male is the father is presumably a conscious thing? Why would it not just be that the male feels a sense of affection for the woman uh, because he's, you know, maybe sharing pleasure with her sexually, and therefore is helpful uh, and feels affection towards her child. Why is that part conscious where all the rest of it is functioning on an unconscious level? Any of it could in principle function on an unconscious or conscious level. Like it could be that natural selection designs an animal to be consciously preoccupied. Uh, see, I mean conscious at different levels. It's like a male is is consciously aware of whether he thinks the woman is being faithful. That part's happening at a conscious level um, in the human species. That's different from saying, first of all, that he's consciously aware of the rationale. Like, I want my genes to be the ones, you know. So, so there's that distinction. But there's also the fact that um, it could be a little conscious and a little unconscious, you know. <laughs> Um, I mean, for example, uh, baboons act as if male baboons, uh, and, and I should say, look, I haven't written about this stuff in decades. Uh, so for all I know, everything I say is wrong. Okay. But I'm pretty sure I remember, um, uh, you know, male, male baboons, uh, infanticide is not uncommon. If they happen upon a female who already has an offspring, the male may kill the offspring, and, uh, and and then and then mate with the female. Now, for all we know, you know, there's no reason to think baboons are particularly conscious of anything. The point is just that animals can act as if they are consciously pursuing a strategy that makes sense in Darwinian terms, and not, in fact, be conscious of much of anything. For all we know, sure. That's, yeah. 
Yeah, it, it's interesting how these things play out. Are you familiar with the Moswo people in southern China? No. Well, they, they're interesting because they sort of um, are a counter example of um, the conventional views of paternity uh, or paternal investment. In their society, which has existed for centuries, Marco Polo passed through there and wrote about them uh, in his travels. Um, the paternal investment comes from the mother's brothers not yeah, the, the mother's the sexual the partners. The Trobriand Islanders, I, I've heard of cultures like that. I think the Trobriand Islanders were probably like that. Hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting. There can be men who have particular roles in supporting the woman and her offspring, but the assumption that those men will be sexual partners and that there's some sort of fidelity, um, you know, that uh, that seems slippery to me. Yeah. But but remember, remember, again, I'm not assuming women are faithful. Uh, that that's doesn't isn't predicted by Darwinian theory, particularly. But note what's happening when when in, in a culture where there's a lot of promiscuity, uh, that is to say, the average uh, woman is having sex with a number of men or something. So it's really hard to say who is the father uh, in a case like that. The male that can say with highest confidence, and again, he wouldn't consciously say it necessarily, but the male who can say with highest confidence that he has a close relationship to the woman's offspring is in fact her brother, mm. okay? Right. Because he shares half her genes, so he shares one quarter of the genes with the child, and if there's enough promiscuity, there's no other male, including all the ones who've had sex with her, who, can, who have that degree of, of, you know, confidence of uh, paternity. I mean, if you're only, if you're, if you're less than 50% sure that you're the father, in other words, you're only less than 50% that you have, uh, that half of your genes are in the offspring, then you have less confidence than that brother does, okay? So the, the pattern you're describing has in fact been used by uh, evolutionary psychologists um, to argue, and, and I'm not even necessarily buying into this, to argue that, that this represents an adaptive Darwinian mechanism uh, designed to take care of your genes in an environment of, uh, of promiscuity. I, uh, I don't know if it's the case, but it makes sense on paper. Sure. It's sort of converging with an inclusive fitness approach to, to mating, right? It's, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, inclusive fitness is always the bottom line. But, uh, more than, uh, you know, that that's the kind of fitness that's always the bottom line. Yeah, right, right. Um, listen, I I didn't want to uh, to bog you down in in debating evolutionary psychology necessarily. <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't come here planning, planning <laughs> to do that either. I just want to um, say it's just I, a bad I, habit. I love your, uh, you know, I mean, I got a lot of. Casilda and I co-authored the book and, and you know, as, as you would expect, there was uh, a lot of positive and a lot of negative, but yours was the most negative comment I remember. So, you know, I, it's funny because I don't. Um, are you sure I'm the one who said that? Uh, oh, God, I may. Have, it's the kind of thing I would say. It's just that I what I remember about the conversation is that because it had been a while since I had really paid attention to the literature. Right. Um, because I'd written the book quite a while ago and then moved on to write about something else. Um, 
I didn't feel that I had sufficient mastery of all the relevant material and, 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 and the material relevant to all the kind of questions and, and seeming counterexamples you were raising, uh, you know, to really give you a super hard time in the conversation itself. I, I, I was trying to be a gently skeptical inquirer, but maybe I failed. <laughs> no, being compared to the Bible? Come on, man. That's fantastic. I meant that in a nice way. <laughs> I hope you meant the New Testament. Um, you, you, you write about everything. I mean, look, I've written two books, and they're basically about the same thing. Uh, and I look at your career and... And I feel like, I don't know, I feel, I feel like um, a bench warmer who has a really uh, good idea of what it's like to be the first stringer. Like, I don't think readers know how hard it is to do what you do. Uh, have you always, I mean, you write about politics, you write about religion, you write about philosophy, you write about evolution. Are, is there a, a grand unifying theme to your work or do you just you know, just see something and say, oh, that's interesting. I'm going to write about that next. Uh, what are you trying to do? Is there is there a plan here? I, I, I like to think this grand unifying theme. I mean, first of all, uh, I would point out that book wise, I haven't been all that prolific uh, at all. You're right. I've, I've written about different things. And I've also there's been a background of non book writing that that makes me on balance, not ashamed of my output. But I'm not one of these uh super prolific uh people but the the um the unifying theme is actually well this is a good uh opportunity to plug something the uh so I, i'm putting out a newsletter now called the non-zero newsletter and uh, i i've made it the home of what i'm calling the apocalypse aversion project um the uh i mean that's happening kind of uh uh, I mean, there's a you, there's a paid version, an unpaid version, and some of that stuff is happening inside the paywall. But um, the uh, uh, that at least points to a lot of what I've been interested in. What the term? I mean, it's obviously kind of ironic term, but the idea is humankind. Okay, so life has been on this planet like three and a half billion years or something, and it is it has reached higher and higher levels of organization okay reached the level of the simple cell the so-called prokaryotic cell then the complex cell the eukaryotic cell then those cells got together into multi-celled organisms then those organisms got get together into societies of multi-celled organisms so you've gotten you you know you've ascended several levels of organization and then in our species we, although we're not the only species with what you could call cultural evolution, that is to say, uh, the intergenerational transmission of information that's not genetic and it's kind of selective retention, we launch, we, we have a big, a robust version of cultural evolution. Technology, ide political ideas, religious ideas, the whole thing. And that evolutionary process has carried the level of organization of our species from the level of like hunter-gatherer society 20,000 years ago to chiefdom, city-state, and so on. And now we're on the verge of uh, forming a global community. That's at least now technologically possible, a, a relatively harmonious global community. Um, and I think we have to cross the threshold 
or it's going to be very bad for us. At, at, at a minimum, the world's nations have to start cooperating systematically to solve a lot of problems, a number of them existential. The most famous, uh, the most famous problem uh, of this kind that requires kind of urgent national cooperation is climate change, but I think there are a lot of others. Um, and we're just wasting our time in pointless ridiculous conflict and just just mindless wars and we're manipulated by politicians into hating people we shouldn't hate and so on the apocalypse aversion project again kind of an ironic name but is an attempt to look at like how you go about solving this problem um and there are a lot of uh entry points a lot of uh things you could do about it. There's specific policies, there are forms of international governance, there, there are parts of psych, human psychology I think you have to uh, work on, like the, the, this kind of psychology of tribalism or whatever you want to call it that we're all uh, burdened with. Um, but to get back to your question, I think a lot of my books have been, have, have been relevant to this. So like, a lot of you know the moral animal which you uh which you mentioned and 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 characterized uh very generously um it, you know there's a a fair amount of that is about or at least a kind of i would say somewhat climactic part of it is about um uh, how distorted our view of the world is you know we're designed you know it gets partly to the psychology of tribalism you know we're we're designed to think that we're morally better than the other person we did more of the work for the project. They did less. When the project goes awry, that's their fault and not our fault. Uh, if somebody, you know, uh, is, is at odds with our own interests, then we decide they're bad people and immoral people and they should be thwarted and so on. Um, so that book is relevant uh, to this. My book, Non-Zero, is relevant in a in a much more direct way. In fact, when I described that whole 3.5 billion years of life up to us being a globalized society, that kind of was a lot of non-zero. Um, my book, The Evolution of God, was about, was relevant. Um, and, uh, and then my last book was about Buddhism and Buddhist me uh, meditation. And that was, you know, framed in, in, in part uh, as being an approach to are all trying to become uh, at least slightly more enlightened beings who are uh, slightly less deluded and as a result less um, less prone to pointless conflict. Um, so I do see uh, a kind of a unifying theme. Um, and I don't know. You know, I was brought up uh, Southern Baptist and so I think... Uh, like evangelizing is kind of something I can't get away from. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this morning I was reviewing your books and, and sort of thinking about it, and I did feel like there was a unifying theme there. And, and that's what I – like how to live in the world. I didn't connect it to your newsletter, but clearly that's the, the latest manifestation of it. Um, how to see more clearly, uh, you know, like how to uh, – sort of um, remove ourselves, cleanse ourselves of cultural illusions or religious illusions or, you know, whatever institutional baggage we're carrying. Um, I'm in a place right now, actually, you may have 
been here for all I know. It's a little town called Crestone, Colorado. Um, it's, no. it's way up in the Rocky Mountains. It's at 8,000 feet at the base of 14,000 foot mountain range. Um, it's, um, it's like a little, a little piece of Tibet dropped into the Rocky mm. Mountains. There are, mm. um, over 20 religious centers in this tiny little town, uh, Zen Buddhists and, uh, um, uh, Carmelite nuns and all these different uh, religions from around the world because this wealthy couple granted uh, land to these different religions and they came here and built retreat centers. So there are stupas. I didn't know about that. Uh, it sounds like a good place to be. Yeah, you should. You might want to check it out. It's uh, There's a Zen uh, center here that's like 300 rooms, I think. They, they have pretty large, large gatherings, and they also have um, isolated cabins up in the mountains, so people do, you know, 30-day silent retreats in, in solitude. Cool. And, yeah, it's a pretty interesting, um, interesting spot. Um, but I was thinking about, about Buddhism, and yeah, I'm – I'm not a Buddhist, but of any organized religion, I think that's the one that I resonate with the most deeply. I did a 10 day Vipassana retreat a few you know, years ago, and um, mm -hmm. I've spent a good bit of time trying to meditate over the years. Um, but, it, but it's interesting because Buddhism sometimes makes me feel kind of hopeless because I feel like I don't know. This is very uh, incomplete thought. But as you were speaking, I was thinking one of my frustrations is that I'm also trying to uh, clarify our vision of things and 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 uh, find a path into a future that's a lot better than the, the trajectory we, we seem to be on. But it feels like the people who rule the world are not interested in the kinds of things that you and I are saying. You've noticed that, too. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, political power and wisdom seem to have uh, disconnected and they're in two totally different paths. Yeah, the um, it's funny. This is uh, just reminds me. I, I, I do a, a weekly, I, well, I do a, I do a podcast called The Right Show, but I do a weekly, I do two a week. One of them is with this old, like, frenemy of mine named Mickey Kaus. And uh, just last week, we, I was saying, you know, the Andrew Cuomo, uh, I don't know when this is going to air, but Andrew Cuomo, uh, governor of New York, has been under fire for sexual harassment and stuff. And I, and I was saying, like, what if the Me Too movement was so successful that men could no longer convert power into sexual access. And so the kinds of men who pursued power became like a different kind of man. I'm not saying all men who pursue power uh, try to convert it into sexual access, but obviously, you know, as the Me Too movement has demonstrated, there are some prominent ones who do, and and, and it's, a, it's a tendency. Um, and I was just... And anyway, that falls under the general heading that your question reminds me of is like, how could we get uh, more people in positions of political responsibility who really have the interests of the world at heart? I think it happens sometimes. I mean, I think like 
I think Jimmy Carter was pretty well-intentioned. I mean, a lot of them will convince themselves they're well-intentioned, in fact. And, um, but, you know, so often when push comes to shove, it's just about maintaining their control on power and maximizing the chances that they'll win the next election and so on. But it really is... Uh, I mean, this is one of the things I'd like to try to figure out as part of this Apocalypse Aversion Project thing is like, how do you apply, like, suppose you could get grassroots traction, you know, a group of people who, who, who share this view of the problem and you're going to try to apply pressure and get politicians to uh, be more responsive to the world's actual needs or get newspapers to do a better job of covering things. I, 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 I'm starting to think more about, you know, whether the pattern you're describing could actually be changed. I mean, you're absolutely right, right? I mean, people who are willing to do the things you have to do to reach a high level of political power, and often corporate power, right, are just often people who have a kind of uh, character or a set of priorities that renders them not the ideal stewards of power, right? Yeah, um, I, I feel like we're our entire um, civilization is organized on the principle that drive for power is a good thing, whereas from my perspective, drive for power or money or fame or, or any of these things is an indication of an imbalanced psyche that there's something wrong you know your 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 daddy didn't love you enough your mother abandoned you you were raised in poverty you couldn't get laid as a teenager you know whatever it is it's a wound that you spend the rest of your life trying to address and never really do and so the entire trajectory of the society is driven by these people who don't have their shit worked out so i mean i i think you know, I wrote about this in, in my last book, which is called Civilized to Death. And uh, there's a whole section in there about hunter-gatherer politics. And, you know, the thing in hunter-gatherer societies is if you show any desire for power or to be in a position of leadership, you're considered ridiculous. That's a laughable, absurd, pathetic hunger to have. And so I, I think that's what we need to do in the Western world. We need to draft people into political positions. We need to take someone who's totally uninterested in being a leader and saying, all right, it's your turn, Bob Wright. You're, you're going to yeah. be president now. And you're saying, no, I don't want to be president. I'm busy. My life is great. Like, sorry, dude, you owe it to us. It has to actually be public service. Yeah. Um. Yeah, the um, I, I mean, this is again an area where we might get we 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 could if we wanted to get into an argument uh, about evolutionary psychology because I don't think a, a a thirst for power is unnatural in the way you you think it is probably. But you're right that hunter gatherer societies um, are good at keeping any such thirst uh, from upsetting the society too much. We we might disagree over whether they're actually successfully repressing something that's natural or something that's unnatural. But it's certainly true that, I mean, they're relatively egalitarian for two reasons. I mean, I mean, one is that there isn't, you know, not a ton in the way of material abundance to be 
unequally distributed. But that aside, they often do have ways of putting people in their place. Um, you know, actually, uh, Richard Wrangham, he's a primatologist. I have no idea if this is true. And I wouldn't call him like he's not like an evolutionary psychologist. He's just a primatologist with a theory. But he thinks that more often than we might imagine throughout history in situations like that, they've actually killed the guy if he got sure. if he got too out of control. He thinks that is itself something that has shaped human evolution. Yeah, Christopher uh, which, Bohm has written about this as well in a hierarchy yeah. in the forest. Yeah, that everyone's been armed for at least 100,000 years. Everyone's been armed and deadly. So it doesn't matter if you're a big, aggressive guy. You're just as likely to be shot in the back as anyone else. Well, and if and if you if you piss off enough guys in your village, it doesn't matter if there aren't any arms. I mean, any three guys can kill any one guy, you know. And uh, anyway, he thinks that's been a thing. But but the point is, what everyone here is agreeing on is that there have been mechanisms for keeping people from abusing power. And uh, in a modern technological society. There are ways for people to amass incredible amounts of power. I mean, first of all, now in, in, in America, incredible amounts of wealth, which translates into power. Um, but also, uh, you know, in some societies, uh, I don't think there are any true autocrats where one person can do whatever they want and they don't have to get the consent of anybody else. But there are people in some countries who have an incredible amount of political power. And there are people in America who have more than I wish they had. Uh, you know, I kind of agree with you. I mean, it would be, uh, you know, you might you might get some some uh, if you just chose people out of the phone book uh, or whatever whatever the current metaphor for randomness is, random selection. Yeah. Now they don't have phone books. Um, yeah. The uh, uh, you know, you would probably get some bad results just as far as sheer competence goes. But on the other hand, if you could, you know, uh, neutralize that question and just randomly select among people who are, are reasonably good at who have shown any, you know, any kind of ability to work together with a large number of people or organize any social endeavor or something. You'd probably do better. I mean, it's a. Uh, and in a way, it's getting worse because, well, I don't know if it's getting worse or getting better now that, you know, like in America, the, the discipline of the party, the political party is broken down. So increasingly, it's just a question of like, who's best at getting attention when primary season rolls around? It was apparently Donald Trump uh, once uh, five years ago. And um, Biden's a somewhat different story. But uh, I mean, the Democratic primary was a somewhat different story. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people in the running who you know at least on stage in the debate so you wouldn't have seen like 30 40 years ago now maybe that's good uh, maybe that can work the way you're hoping uh things might work out where you get somebody who just wouldn't normally uh be there who takes a shot and they're they're better than the average politician but i guess what bothers me is it's still the case that you got to really really want it right mm. it's like and yeah. i think I think one thing we're agreeing on is that is that often people who really, really want it, want the power, just want it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Yeah. You shouldn't want anything that badly. I mean, if you if you're attending to your life properly, you don't really need 
external approval. You don't need more than a sort of basic income. You don't need more than a basic house. You know, everything. I, I often equate it to red wine. I lived in Spain for 20 years, so red wine is uh, appears in my metaphors pretty often. Uh, you know, 15 euro bottle of wine is just fine. Anyone who's spending 100 euros on a bottle of wine is just showing off. Well, you and know, they've done studies, by the way. They've done studies showing that the people who think they can tell the difference uh, can't. Yeah. But but they've also, I'm pretty sure they did one of those with a brain scan and showed that uh, the people thinking, you know, the way they do the study is they put a fake label on the bottle of wine. And I think they showed that the when they have the fake label seeming to show that it's a rare and precious bottle of wine, that, you know, the actual pleasure centers do light up in the brain. I mean, it works at that level. Your belief, you know, yeah. but it's crazy. It's placebo. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Oh, totally. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, as far as the political uh, discussion, I, I feel like I agree with you that the, the field seems to have been opened up more in the sense that someone like Andrew Yang was on the stage for a while. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things I admire most about Andrew Yang is that he... Uh, you know, he was on that trip. He, I think he went to Harvard or, you know, Yale or some, some fancy school. And then he got a job in Wall Street at a big firm. And, you know, he was doing that. And after a year, he said, wow, I'm really unhappy. And he quit. Uh -huh. To me, that is qualification for leadership. So, you know, someone That's who has the courage time, yeah. to disappoint his parents and quit. Um, yeah. You know, but the, what I worry about is that the American political uh, structure and institutions are so broken that unless, you know, in the primaries, unless you appeal to the lunatics in the party, you don't really have a chance of making it through to the general election, at least on the Republican side. Um, and, you know, with gerrymandering and now the voter suppression stuff that's happening, where do you think we're going? Are, have we ha, have we dodged a bullet or are we in the eye of the storm right now? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think which metaphor is closer. I mean, I don't think we're out of the woods to throw in a third. Um <laughs> The uh, I think we're with the woods in the eye of the hurricane. No, wait, never mind. Um, we're not out of those. Uh, the uh, um, the you know, I think uh, the good news is ways in which we are waking up. Um, like I think we're more aware of cognitive biases. I mean, my, my way of looking at the so-called psychology of tribalism, which is, which is just another way of saying we're naturally groupish. We, we congregate in groups and, 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 and we will, um, we can under certain circumstances uh, have a bias against other groups or, or at least process information in a way that works the advantage of our group and against the other group. Um, the, the 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 cognitive biases that constitute the, this this uh, kind of groupishness, this psychology of tribalism, I think some of them are getting more and more attention. That's good. Like confirmation bias is a famous one, you know, where where it's now famous, and it wasn't thirty twenty years ago, where where um, you know you 
information that's consistent with your pre-existing beliefs you embrace and remember, and information that doesn't support your pre-existing beliefs you reject or don't remember. Um, people are more aware of these. There's one uh, that I can get into if you want that I think people aren't aware enough of, a, a cognitive bias, but, but, but the general growing awareness of the ways the mind is not, you know, should should your own the, the idea that your own processing of the world should be viewed somewhat skeptically because we're all prone to these biases. That I think is getting out there more and more. Now, that's only the first step toward actually uh, significantly neutralizing the problem or overcoming the problem because because these biases are very subtly ingrained, I, I think, in the way we view the world. And and one one thing I like about uh, mindfulness meditation uh, is that I don't think it's it's an, it's easy uh, to um, well it's not easy for me to even focus on you know five consecutive breaths so meditating generally is not easy for me but it holds the potential to make us more aware of subtle ways our our mind is being warped. Uh, by feelings, by biases, and so on, um, and better able to surmount that. Uh, so, I mean, th that's like a good thing, I think. Um, I still think there's a tendency of people to say, oh, yeah, cognitive biases, man. I see those in the other tribe all the time. It's a serious problem. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's a serious problem for all of us. Yeah. And, you know, um, my newsletter is now called Non-Zero. Its predecessor, when I first started a newsletter, was called Mindful Resistance because <clears throat> this goes back like to 2017. My Buddhism book had just come out. And I thought the resistance was not being mindful enough. It was being too reactive, I thought, to Trump, playing into his hands, um, you know, uh, denouncing his supporters in mass. They're all racist or they're all this. And, and that just plays into his hands and confirms his narrative and the narrative he sells to his supporters that we hold them in contempt and we're these snooty coastal elites and we think we're better than them. I mean, it's just you're just doing him a favor when you denounce all his supporters. And I think you're often doing him a favor when you fall for his bait generally and, and, and get outraged at certain things. Not all. I mean, you have to get outraged at certain things. This is definitely the case. But, um, you know, so I think, so I have uh, had the kind of uphill struggle of trying to convince people who share uh, my dislike of Trump that it's best to be kind of careful in the way you try to exert resistance to him when he was president or to what he represents now, you know. Um, I'm a, you know, uh, I just think we all, uh, we all, self-examination is, is a good thing for us all. And, um, I like meditation because it's a tool, uh, that can be used toward self-examination. But I think, I, I mean, so I, I see hopeful things. I can talk about more hopeful things that I see, but I guess, what is worrisome is that I really think we need to see broad-based progress on this front. Real self-examination, self-awareness. Um, and, and it's just hard. I mean, we're just, well, my view is we're designed by natural selection to not be good at that. You know, like, yeah. 
it, it built in the biases. Naturally, it didn't, it didn't build brains that are good at spotting the biases. That's what biases are, right. things that are hard to spot, right? Right. And, and a brain that could be conscious of itself doesn't make sense, right? It's the snake eating its well, own tail. Well, there's that problem, too. The intrinsic, uh, yeah, the fact that if there is a, I mean, it has to be a level of, un, yeah, just in principle, a level of unconscious information processing. There has to be. Yeah. It's like, you know, just, just too much. you know, I, ideas spring to mind. Well, where did they come from, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that has to be the case. And so it just, you know, it, it, it's just obvious at one level, we're not aware of what's a lot of what's going on in our brain at the conscious level. I'm always... And some of that's fine, but some of it isn't. Yeah, I, I'm always interested how, like, sometimes in a dream, we'll be surprised by something. You know, you'd like whatever blue dragon, like, oh, where'd that come from? Well, it came from the same brain that's experiencing, you know, it's right. like, how can a surprise come from the same place that's perceiving it? Yeah. It's, um, and, and aren't you the director of the movie? You generated right. the dream, right? <laughs> you like, wrote the screenplay, you know? man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, I, it's strange when you were talking, I, I was thinking um, how... You know, like here you and I are two, you know, on a global scale and a historical scale, very wealthy uh, people with a lot of free time. And um, and yet we struggle with this uh, self-awareness and this, um, you know, uh, trying to find the, the, the consciousness to filter out or to recognize our own biases. And then you think about most people who are just so overwhelmed with responsibilities and childcare and, you know, going to some job they don't like. And um, it, it feels hopeless because it's not enough for college professors and writers and journalists to, uh, you know, figure this stuff out. There are hundreds of billions or hundreds of millions more of them than there are of us. We're still outnumbered, even if, you know, if everyone who had the opportunity could meditate and really think about these things, it still feels like the the deck is stacked against us because so many people are so preoccupied just with survival and i feel like now that's an yeah. even bigger issue well also it's not as if all college professors have figured it out i mean you know if you look at the two the kind of red and blue tribes so to speak in america you know they are led by elites uh they're led by college professors and journalists and lawyers and so on and uh you know these are very capable people uh, who seem to have figured out at either a conscious or an unconscious level that the way you raise your stature within your tribe is to increase hostilities between the tribes, right? Mm. I mean, it's like the way you can get a lot of retweets if you're, say, in the blue tribe, like me, more or less, um, is to, like, find a video of some Trump supporter freaking out in a supermarket because somebody told him to put on a mask <laughs> and, like, call them an idiot yeah. And you get a billion retweets. And what you're doing is fostering the idea that all Trump supporters are like that. And, and like, no, they're not. I mean, the, the, so as a result, the examples that, that the blue side sees of red behavior and that the red side sees of blue behavior 
are the worst examples. I mean, that's because that's what circulates on social media. And and uh, and there are some you know people who who have really risen to great heights on Twitter and are very smart people who have done it largely by distorting their tribe's view of the other side and uh, or in other ways deepening the antagonism between the tribes. And look, I'm not saying there's not a place for criticizing uh, the ideas uh, that you don't like on the other side or like the powerful people who are uh, who are espousing the ideas and so on. The, the, you know, the, I'm not I'm not talking about um, a, a strategy of passive resistance. I'm just I'm just I, well. I'm just getting back to your point. Is like, first of all, it's not like all the elites have it figured out. All the people on either side, they're part of the problem. And also, some of the people who you described who really have a hard time making ends meet. They're not part of the problem because they spend all their time making ends meet. Mm. <laughs> you know, some of them are. There are there are people who fit that description who are rabidly in support of uh, you know their tribe, so to speak, to a to a point that's not uh, productive. But um, you know, a lot of them don't have time or inclination to hang out on social media making things worse either. Is there um, a point where corporate power is going to come in and shut this down? Because it's it's not my understanding is that, you know, significant, serious corporate power wants stability. They want to be able to make five year plans. They want global trade to proceed unencumbered by this kind of nonsense. And they run the world, right? Or when I say they, I don't even mean people. I mean institutions yeah. and, you know, the sort of forces of globalization. It seems like it's time for them to come in and say, sit down and shut up, you guys. You're starting to cut into our profit margin at some point. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've long wondered, and I've wondered this more in the context of kind of international, of, of like international conflict, like war and stuff. Um, but I've wondered why, uh, why doesn't capitalism do a better job of making the world safe for itself? You know, it's like, right. there's a lot of values that capitalism has that I don't share and I wouldn't want them implemented, but it does have an interest in stability uh, and although, because it wants a platform on which to make money, and although that can have its downsides, it, there are forms of stability that are so pernicious you have to fight them. Still, I've kind of wondered, like, why, um, why do corporations so tolerate America's uh, America's recent penchant for destabilizing the world uh, with pointless wars and things? Yeah. Yeah, aside from the corporations that are profiting on the wars. Yeah, I mean, there's the arms manufacturers and, you know, uh, insidiously, the big digital companies now have contracts with the Pentagon. Um, you know, Google, uh, Amazon and Microsoft were fighting over some big cloud computing contract with the Pentagon. Mm. Uh, and I, you know, heard Jeff Bezos say, you know, Gosh darn it, you gotta, you know, how can people question the importance of keeping our country strong? And it's like, well, is that really what the Pentagon's been doing? I mean, 
you know, and, and look, I come from an Army family. I grew up around the Army. My father was an Army officer, and I, I really have genuine respect and affection for the military. I really do. Um, but I, I don't see how you can look. And it's not the military that decides how to throw our military weight around, by the way. Those decisions right. generally come from politicians. Um, but how can Jeff Bezos, like, not understand that some of us look at the way military force has been deployed by the U.S. for the last, you know, a few decades, if, and, 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 you know, even before then, for sure, uh, in some ways, but uh, and have doubts about whether the Pentagon's really doing a great job of, uh, of keeping us secure in the sense that we want to be secure. I, I, um, but, but anyway, the, uh, you know, it, it does go, you're right. You're, you're right that in some ways it's not a mystery that not all corporations seem to be trying to rein in America's reckless use of force because some of them, the arms makers and increasingly, and this is alarming, you know, when you think about it, when you look at all of the things, the kinds of influence that the Silicon Valley companies have, right, like, especially like if they have control over social media or something. I mean, Google has a huge amount of influence over what we see and what we don't see. Yeah. They've got YouTube. They've got the, the search algorithm. And so for them to have... uh had Pentagon contracts, and they have, you know, for them to to have uh, a kind of symbiosis um, with the military industrial complex and to be part of it is, is to, to me, disturbing. What do you think about the idea that, you know, earlier you were talking about your the sort of central, um, the, the trajectory of uh, non-zero and how you talked about how single cellular organisms became multicellular and, you know, social and uh, sort of this increasing trajectory toward complexity. Uh, and then we arrive at Homo sapiens, arguably the most complex, most social organism on the planet. You know. Well, I'm not sure about most social, but I mean, if you compare us to like, I mean, ant, ant societies or something are are, are uh, pretty intricate and amazing. But um, yeah. but 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 we're uh, maybe in a way more uh, complexly, more open endedly social. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. And, and, and ants haven't come up with an Internet as as far as I know. No, we're definitely sm I, I, I can safely say on behalf of our species, we are smarter than ants. Well, I don't know, but see, there's where I, I, I might not go with you. Smart. We have to dis <laughs> define smart. Uh, but anyway, wh what do you think about the idea that humans have uh, congregated into larger superorganisms, which are governments, religions, institutions, and so on? And the trajectory of intelligence is toward a merging with technology and that what Google and these other data collecting mechanisms are doing is basically uh, learning how to be human, learning their, you know, ostensibly at this point, they're learning our, about our behavior so they can sell us things better and they can make more money on advertising uh, by targeting. Um, 
But also they're learning how to speak. They're learning how to listen. They're learning how to think. They're learning how to be human. Uh, are we a larval form of intelligence? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I mean, I, uh, I don't think it's crazy to talk about the human species becoming a superorganism. Um, and by the way, ant societies are, are considered superorganisms. Some biologists would use that term about them because an ant, an ant colony, you know, it, it's as if it were a single mind saying, where's the food? Go get it. Bring it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, they process information in some ways. It's like a single brain. Um, but there is no brain. There's no leadership. It all just happens. It's it's pretty decentralized. Yeah, it, it, it's in the um, I mean, there's a headquarters and there's a there's a you know, but but um, yeah, uh, and in principle, a superorganism could be either like like an animal. An animal can have a pretty distributed information processing system or a a more centralized one. But anyway, the idea uh, that we are in some sense becoming a superorganism. Is you know it creeps some people out uh, and it raises some creepy questions, and uh, but I don't think it's an outlandish uh, form of speculation. You know there was this. Uh, do you know the name Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, this sure. theologian slash philosopher, Jesuit priest, also paleontologist, uh, who lived about a hundred years ago and. Was his work was banned for a time by the Catholic Church because he had a very radical theology, uh, but he he thought of humankind as he, he was very he was very ahead of his time because even like a hundred years ago he said like or maybe ninety or something but anyway he's he's like look at all these information technologies folks is like you know telephone radio they are binding the you know they are they are they are making the species in some ways more super organic. And he thought that this was, uh, you know, the, for the entire global species to come together and form, in some sense, you could say maybe a single organism, but in any event, in his view, to be bound by love, okay, uh, he saw that as the culmination of kind of divine purpose. This, that he, he thought we were moving toward point omega. Um, you know, and I would say if if uh, you know if, if the choice is is between being um, a superorganism that's kind of coerced into being or something, or that is you know, uh, uh, I don't know. I, well, I, I, I don't know if I can flesh out this thought. I, I guess I would just say that I certainly agree with him that we need to become a more unified species. Whether you know what. You cross the line towards superorganism. I don't know, but I, but I also agree with him that for it to happen in a way that's good for all of us and and works toward the greater good, it needs to be um, it needs to involve a feeling of real goodwill toward other human beings and a breaking down of the of the kind of cognitive and emotional barriers to that feeling and, and more in the way of mutual understanding and understanding the way people in different circumstances look at the world different from us and you know using that understanding to just reduce the amount of uh, conflict and behave in a more globally harmonious fashion 
I mean, you're raising the additional question of like, does technology, uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong, you're raising the question of whether uh, technology at some point uh, becomes a more important part of the infrastructure than us or something like, right? Like yeah. a superorganism where uh, the, um, you know, the, the bulk of the intelligence is, is embedded in the silicon or something, right? Yeah, and also, I, I mean, I I think my vision of this is quite a bit darker than yours, I'm afraid, because I think we already are embedded in superorganisms. I think that, uh, you know, Exxon, for example, is a superorganism. I, I often say, you know, if the CEO of Exxon... Uh, went to Peru and took ayahuasca with his son and had a, an epiphany and went back to his office Monday morning and said, guys, we got to stop this deep water drilling. We're destroying our planet. This makes no sense. He'd be out of a job. Exxon wouldn't change course, right? Nobody, nobody runs Exxon. Exxon runs itself. The participants are replaceable. And so yeah. I, I, you know, and it's in our language, you know, the Exxon believes that the environment is the, how can, how can Exxon believe anything? It, Exxon has no brain, right? Exxon is not a, a biological entity. And yet we accept that Exxon has, you know, the rights of personhood in American law. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it can evaporate and come back in another name and avoid taxation and avoid, you know, what Chevron's doing right now in, in Ecuador, just um, uh, evading responsibility for destroying entire ecosystems. Uh, I, I think we're already there. I think it's kind of like we're worried about the aliens coming and enslaving us. It's already happened. We're in we live on a planet that's ruled by these superorganisms, and we're wondering, like, why do people? It makes no sense. Why do people destroy their own water supply? Well, we're not doing it. These superorganisms within which we're embedded are doing it, and they don't give a yeah, damn. Yeah, I, I mean, no, I, I take your point. I mean, there's so much I want to say in response. I mean, uh, for one thing, you said, you know. Exxon isn't like it. It's not a mind. It's not a brain. Although, if if you if if you want us to take the superorganism idea seriously with respect to Exxon, I, I think you have to entertain the possibility that <laughs> you know it's like it is like something to be Exxon. Maybe there is a unified Exxon. Con I mean, I, that, that's a that's a a, a semi crazy metaphysical speculation that is worth entertaining. Not so much with respect to Exxon, but but if you want to look well into the future, like could could the, could the uh, human species acquire some kind of unified consciousness? I think, you know, who knows? That's an interesting question. But but back to how dark how dark the, the view is. I mean, first of all, there are psychedelics. It's a, an interesting cultural thing is that more people are, are it's more respectable. Hmm. Now, I don't consider psychedelics a cure-all. Like, it could be that if you gave the, the, um, the the head of Exxon Psychedelics, he would have some mystical experience about how important it was to increase Exxon's revenues. You can't rule that out. I mean, it's an unpredictable. Right. I mean, look, Steve Jobs. That's what I was going to say, Steve right? Jobs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. he took psychedelics, steered him into Apple. Yeah. After which he spent his life trying to obtain attain total world dominance for Apple. That's look. 
he he produced some really beautiful stuff and and in and in a way he was more interesting than the average CEO and and he certainly emphasized the aesthetics the aesthetics of products more and so on but you can't tell me he wasn't a a you know a ruthlessly competitive person and he was you know spent his spent his uh time he's put in his hours as a, as a young acid head you know so yeah. um uh, but but at the same time i mean i think uh you know the uh the michael pollan book about this helped kind of legitimize the book uh, how to change your mind helped legitimize um this form of exploration which i think again doesn't have guaranteed good results and can have you know very bad results i wouldn't advise anyone to do this stuff casually but um it's uh you know and 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 just at, at a more mundane level corporations are responsive to popular feedback you know now it may be that the various green initiatives that oil companies do is just pr bullshit and a lot of it is but they do care about how they're perceived and i mean the other thing is like i drove through kansas a couple of years it's like there's windmills everywhere i mean you know there is you know some change in the composition of uh of energy that um I don't, you know, and it, it, it isn't just driven by economics. I mean, I think increasingly it may be driven by economics as the technology gets better and more efficient and so on. But, you know, we have, we haven't been, our society hasn't been totally blind to these things we need to be paying attention to. Um, I mean, I, the thing that, that, drives me more to despair than anything is to see the way our media uh, reports on uh, just world events like, uh, you know, like uh, like certain designated enemies like Iran um, or uh, I, I was just reading a story. I'm writing about this now for my newsletter, but a story that David Sanger and a couple of other people wrote for the New York Times about cyber hacking and like, how are we going to respond to the Russian solar wind hack? And it doesn't note anywhere in the whole piece. We do exactly the same thing all the time. We just mm. get caught less often. And Russia is not the kind of society to publicize it. We're doing yeah. the exact same thing. And the article is all about like, how are we going to retaliate to rein this in? We're, we're all we're retaliating 24 seven, man. We yeah. this we just do this all the time. And right. so to have like U.S. media outlets who seem to think it's their mission to not give us an objective view of the actual situation. Right. Like I thought reporters were supposed to try to give us an objective view of the actual situation. And I just see this everywhere in our in 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 um, in, in foreign relations, in reporting about foreign affairs. In the in in most of the foreign policy establishment, which is here's another another piece of progress though is there now is a derisive term for the foreign policy establishment, the blob. Mm. Mm. That's now known in Washington, okay? And it's like, uh, and and there is uh, you know more in the way of a non-blob element criticizing the blob. There's a little progress there. You've been working in alternative. I mean, you're you're really interesting because you've been everywhere in mainstream sort of conventional media, the New York Times, the New Yorker, you know, like 
name a, a, a publication, it seems you've got a byline there or have at some point. And yet you've been in sort of taking advantage of alternative platforms a long time. And your blogging heads thing was one of the first um, sort of YouTube-based uh, discussion, sort of was video. It, was it, it was before, it wasn't even YouTube-based. It was before Google even bought YouTube. Um, huh. It was in two, we started in 2005. Uh, we, uh, yeah, but, but, um, Mickey Kaus yeah, was it slate early audio video podcast. You did that with Mickey Kaus as well. Right. He, right. he was the co-founder along with a guy named Greg Dingle. Yeah. And was Mickey at slate early on? We both had been at slate from early days because we had worked at the new Republic when Mike Kinsley, who founded slate was the editor. Right. Um, and Mickey was at slate. I don't know if I was still writing. I was still probably writing for Slate a little still when we started blogging heads, but not that much. But he was there. Uh, I think he still had a, his blog there, Cows Files. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I love but, I love Slate back in the day. It I, I don't love it so much now. But well, Mike was you know he was uh, a great editor at both the New Republic and Slate, um, and and uh, uh, you know real genius. Um, but the uh, no, I, I, you know, I, I still occasionally write for conventional media. I had a piece about this foreign policy stuff in the Washington Post a couple of months ago on uh, espousing what I call progressive realism, a, a foreign policy alternative to the the blob's view. Um, but now uh, most of my writing is for my newsletter or else books and. Um, you know, that leaves me free to uh, care less about whether there will be blowback for denouncing various people like David Sanger of the New York Times or, mm. you know, it, it, it um, and, I, and I think you need, you know, you need that freedom uh, because denunciation is sometimes in order. Um, and, yeah. Were you feeling constrained? Is that, or did you just see the potential of these alternative independent platforms early on? I don't think there was really a big plan. Um, I just, uh, I mean, blogging heads just seemed like an interesting thing to try when I realized it was technically feasible. This was before it was done by broadband. Like, mm. I mean, we weren't, uh, you weren't, broadband connections weren't robust enough to sustain a good video signal. So uh, you had to have a workaround if you wanted to have a side-by-side -side video conversation that you could post online. And when I realized that was possible, I just got interested in the thing. Um, the, uh, but I've been, I, I've just been interested in exploring technological possibilities for a long time. I wrote about, uh, I wrote about the internet, uh, there was a New Republic story in, I don't know, maybe 94, 95 or something, a cover story that uh, was about my experience with the Internet when when many of our readers hadn't had the term and, and virtually none of them were on it. Mm. Um, so I've always, you know, been kind of interested in technology. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. You've got such a vision into prehistory, but you're also very much looking forward and you, I, I, and where I began, I really admire your appetite. Your intellectual appetite is huh. 
omnivorous. You know, you're you're everywhere. It's 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 great. It's admirable. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go that far. There are plenty of people who are living uh, happy lives entirely unaware of me. Believe me, um, <laughs> the, the uh, more than I'd like. Uh, but uh, the uh, I mean, that's the other thing about the current media environment is just it's so segmented, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's strange. It's it's, it's I, I think podcasts are fantastic. I think, you know, we're we're like in the early days of the printing press. The fact that you and I can talk about anything we want, push a couple of buttons and have tens of thousands of people listening to it in 20 minutes is just amazing. You know, right. No but the more people who do that, the harder it's going to be to hang on to the tens of thousands. Um, <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> which know is what's, what's happening now. Yeah. Um, but that may be good. Let me finish uh, by asking you for some recommendations. Uh, mm. I'd, I'd just love to know what someone like you, you know, what what books would you recommend? I'd say my audience is probably. Uh, mostly 25 to 40 looking for an alternative way to live life. You know, the American dream isn't really there and like um, alternative approaches. Uh, so I, I'm interested. What what books, what music, what films, what what uh, do you recommend to young people? I know you teach. Are you teaching at Princeton now or Union Theological? I'm not doing any teaching now. Princeton was the last uh, place I, I taught a couple of seminars on Buddhism while I was writing my Buddhism book. And, and then I, uh, I, I had an affiliation with uh, Union Theological Seminary. Actually, this, uh, this, this kind of historically a kind of famously left-wing uh, seminary in New York. Um, but I'm, I'm not doing any teaching now. A, a, a book I'm... I've been listening to is this book, The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Um, it's about uh, this this uh, this woman named Jennifer Doudna, who won the Nobel Prize for, you know, being as much as anybody responsible for the development of this technology called CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which is itself... <clears throat> I think it's uh, uh, both a promising and a scary technology. It's a gene editing technology that's going to make it uh, uh, possible to intervene in, in human evolution in ways that could have good effects and could have scary effects. And, uh, you know, to bring us back to this Apocalypse Aversion Project, I mean, I think one reason we have to get, you know, establish international laws and norms, you know, to govern some of these things is that if you imagine, you know, the power to change the human species, to, to edit the, the genes in ways that are heritable, if you imagine that unfolding in a context of intense international competition, right? Like where we don't trust, we don't know what the Chinese are doing, and we fear they're building super soldiers or whatever, then no nation is going to be able to regulate this stuff in a sane way, right? Mm. Because they're going to be too freaked out about what the other nations are doing. And there is a lot of promise here. So it's not like you want to stifle it completely. But obviously, a lot of bad things can happen. I mean, similarly, just forget human genetic engineering. The bioweapons you could design um, and unleash. And that, thanks to this technology, uh, I think, uh, and other technologies, um, relatively small groups of 
not all that well-funded people could could design in a in a in a college lab or something. So that's another thing where I think we have to get it under control at a global level. Anyway, I digress. It's a it's a, it's the book is two things. It's an interesting uh, story about a fierce scientific race, uh, and you know the human ego is fully on display here, and there there, there are patent disputes, and it, there's a question of who will win the Nobel Prize. Jennifer Doudna does, and then the section of the book I'm getting to now is laying out these questions, some of the questions and concerns. I'm not through that part yet, uh, but you know Walter Isaacson, the author, is a you know very smart person and. I don't doubt that he'll do a good job of that. So that's what I've been, uh, I've been listening to, uh, book-wise. Hmm. Uh, musically, I'm so far out of touch. You don't want to hear. You don't want to hear my view. No, I do. I do. I, do you listen to, to like classical music or jazz or what? What do you? Is is music an important part of your of your life or not so much? If I'm working. Uh, I might listen to classical or jazz just because it has no words, so you don't get yeah. distracted. Right. Um, but, you know, I quit paying attention to new music. You know, as people get older, they often do that. You know, your yeah. your, 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 your music ob obsessiveness, I think, tends to climax around your 20s, probably, your early yeah. 20s or something. And I've kept less and less in touch. It's like, it's funny, the Grammys were just on and my wife said... Uh, oh, the Grammys were, were are on tonight or were on tonight. What's the difference from my point of view? The uh, and I just said, boy, you talk about a world where I would be completely, completely yeah. out to sea. I bet well, there's I'm not. I said, I, I bet there's not a song in the running for anything that I'm familiar with. Um, yeah, I watched the Super Bowl this year uh, just because it's the Super Bowl, not because I really care about football. Yeah, and the halftime show was by someone I had never heard of. And I thought, wow, the halftime show at the Super Bowl. That's how out of touch I am. I'm trying to think of the name. I had heard the name, but I, but I didn't. Uh, the fact that I can't remember now tells you I wasn't very familiar with it. <laughs> it was like Weekend or something like that, but spelled yeah. strangely. I, yeah. I mean, I'm yeah, 59. Uh, I'm, I'm roughly your age, so... Uh, but I mean, I, I listen to the late Beethoven quartets probably once a month. Uh, you know, some some Chopin uh, ballads. Uh, you know, and as you say, they're things that I became familiar with in my early twenties. Um, but yeah. they're, you know, no, I, I like like the the popular the rock and roll from from that era, and uh, you know, and even a certain amount of stuff since then that I've liked. Uh, it, it's you know it's like I can see the appeal of contemporary music, I just don't I just don't follow it. Yeah, yeah. Who's got time? So Pardon. how do you hang on to such a young audience if you're as old as I am? I'm their uh, I'm their funky. You're their, you're their kindly grandfather. Well, uncle. I, <laughs> let's keep it at uncle for now. Okay. <laughs> I want, I maybe grandfathers. Sorry, Sorry my bad. That's all right. I'm probably I'm old enough to be some of their grandfathers, probably. But um, yeah, no, I I mean I think there's a you know there's a um, there's a missing uh, older male uh, figure in a lot of people's lives, um, and uh, I think that a lot of 
popular podcasts are sort of uh, connecting with that. You know, someone like Joe Rogan. Do you know Joe Rogan? You know who he is? I know he is for sure. Yeah. 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 So he's he's a friend of mine. I've been on his show a lot. And uh, that's... Oh, tell him to have me on his show. <laughs> well, yeah. The thing about Joe is nobody tells him what to do. So no, I mean, uh, I mean, I want, I want an order issued. <laughs> I mean, command him, and I want you to tell him that if it comes to it, you're willing to get physical. Yeah, I'll, I'll slap him around go, on your behalf. Go toe to toe. How about if I tell him you're willing to go physical? That. <laughs> uh, don't tell him that. No. You know, a tell lot. You a lot of. Uh, people who've been on my show do go on and, and do Joe's show. Like he's aware of of guests that I've had on. So yeah. um, and sometimes that works out really well and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> he's, he's had a few people on that I recommended that it didn't work out at all. It didn't work? No. You don't, you don't want to name names probably, but. I'll well, the one I'm thinking of was a dominatrix. And uh, I, I think she just uh. made him very uncomfortable, but. Uh, you don't have that same, that same kind of energy, so I think it would be fine. <laughs> for you. Actually, I like to think I have the energy of a dominatrix. <laughs> just don't I'm show just up. I'm just not a dominatrix. It's a yeah. different kind of energy. Don't show up in latex thigh high boots. That's that's my advice. No, no danger of that happening. All right, all right. Hey, Bob, thank you. I know you're a busy man, and uh, thank I you, really... Chris. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, I will. Uh, where where can people find all your stuff? They should sign up for your newsletter. I get it. Uh, yeah, non-zero newsletter. It's on Substack. And also, uh, well, some of the older archives are nonzero.org. But the um, uh, on Twitter, I'm Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Um, and, you know, those are, well, my show, the podcast is The Right Show, uh, which is on, on YouTube. It's on some of them are on the Blogging Heads platform. The others on the Meaning of Life TV platform, the more kind of philosophical ones. Um, and uh, and you have a website, that, which which you haven't looked at in a long time, apparently. No, don't go to robertwright.com. That's been uh, under construction for <laughs> millennia. <laughs> it had the ipsum, the the strange like yeah, filler text. Yeah, some of it's in Latin. Yeah. <laughs> in Latin. If you read Latin, go there and tell me what it says. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Robert Wright. Super cool guy. <clears throat> hey, if you want to support this podcast, there are lots of ways to do it. You can throw some money my way uh, by my through my website, thatchrisryan.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com. There's a donate button for one time. Drop some cash in the can or you can subscribe if you do subscribe you have access to all the ebooks that we've put together from uh, the archives of the podcast um, as well as uh, tangentially reading which was the first one and then there's a one that's focused on sexuality and another one focused on consciousness you also get uh, access to the monthly video roma that i do where i answer every question that subscribers put to me or at least address every question not all questions have answers but i do address them so if you've got a question or you just want access to see me wrestling with these conundrums um check that out 
uh, video Roma available to subscribers. What else? Uh, you can always order stuff from my mom. She's about to tell you about the t-shirts and the beer koozies and the stickers that you can get. Thanks for listening. I'll be back with you soon with another hopefully fascinating conversation. Stay cool out there. Okay, Mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of T-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. (laughs) She didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, civilized to death. Design. They're all civilized That's right. to death. We have stickers and car decals, right? Yes. Okay. There you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. to the ground.